If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. Today's interview is with the historian and author Tom Holland. Tom has just published a new book entitled Dominion, which traces the history of Christianity and argues that it has had a radical and enduring impact in the West, even in an age of secularism. I paid a visit to Tom in his London home a few days ago to find out more. What do you see as the key influences on Christianity from the ancient world? Well, the obvious influence, of course, is the inheritance of um, Hebrew scripture, there's a temptation to say Judaism, but but I think it's a mistake to think that that something called Judaism exists in the lifetime of Jesus. What there is is something that is called in Greek Judaismos, i.e. Jewishness, which covers the whole range of scripture, of practice, of a sense of nationhood, of ritual practice. One of the things that is distinctive about this is really that it's probably best to think of it as as being points on a spectrum, points on a bandwidth. And the two ends of that bandwidth are defined by the fact that the the God of the Jews is very distinctive. On the one hand, he is the God of Israel. He has a personal covenant with the children of Israel. On the other end of the spectrum, he is the God who has created all the heavens and the earth and therefore is the fashioner of every human being who lives. So what emphasis do you put on him? Do you put an emphasis on him as as a kind of ethnocentric god, a god who is who who, who is primarily concerned with with the the children of Israel, or do you put an emphasis on him as a kind of universal god who cares for all the peoples of the world? And in a sense, what 
emerges as rabbinical Judaism is the form that that, that emphasizes the um, the status of God as 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 the God of Israel, and what becomes Christianity is the form that emphasizes his role as a universal deity. So that, of course, is 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 the overwhelmingly significant influence. That's really is 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 what Christianity emerges from, but it's seasoned with all kinds of other influences. It's seasoned by uh, the inheritance of, of Persian dualism, which it's absorbed through the Jewish inheritance. Um, it's born into a world that is culturally deeply saturated in Greek concepts, Greek uh, language, Greek notions, Greek philosophical notions. So these two are part of, of, of what informs it. And then, of course, it's born into a, a self-proclaimed universal empire, the Empire of Rome. And the circumstances of its emergence, this proclamation of a son of a god who has come to rule an entire world, this is clearly influenced by and a reaction against the Roman portrayal of Augustus, who is the son of Julius Caesar, the deified Julius Caesar, also the son of a god, also with claims to a, a universal rule, and whose enthusiasts proclaim euangelion, a, a, the good news of the Augustan peace. And so it, it, it's possible to see Christianity as well as a kind of parody of the imperial cult. What do you think made it so successful in its early days? What enabled it to spread so quickly in a way that other similarly might call them cults hadn't? Well, I think, I mean, I mean I th- I, I, clearly part of it is that, it, that it, it does fuse together so many desperate cultural elements at a time where the Roman Empire is serving as a kind of melting pot. And it, and it does it much more successfully than almost any other kind of philosophy or cultic practice. Beyond that, what it offers to non-Jews, in a sense, is is all the riches and the the kind of the theological potency of Jewish scripture and Jewish practice, without actually having to go through what for men is the most unsettling demand, which is which is circumcision. So that's the huge appeal. But I think that that also in a world that is governed by power and by brutal displays of power and the most terrifying image of that power really is the cross on which people can be nailed at the 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 whim of any provincial governor it offers a reassurance that um actually those who've always been despised those who've always been at the bottom of the pile those who've always been liable to the most brutal and 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 sordid executions actually are as close to if not closer the the omnipotent deity who's fashioned the heavens the earth and the rich or the powerful and 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 this is an enormously potent concept and it's one that clearly people find spiritually satisfying but also as the church grows so also does the church come to provide practical sustenance it effectively comes to provide a welfare state and so the church as it grows a kind of cuckoo in the roman nest ultimately comes to kind of provide a shadowy state within a state because it, 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 it's bishops, it's are figures of, of an awesome authority of a kind that, that, that any Roman would respect. But it also provides famine relief. It provides um, help to those who've been imprisoned. It uh, 
provides sanctuary for orphans or for widows or for the old. Essentially, it provides everything that, that, that we today would look for in a welfare state. Uh, and there is simply nothing comparable to it in the Roman world. And so you can see why all of these circumstances would combine to make it very, very popular to large classes of people. And then, of course, when Constantine converts and it becomes the official imperial cult, then, of course, it has all that weight behind it as well. And so it's not surprising that its growth accelerates prodigiously. So how integral is the Roman adoption of Christianity to its long-term success? It's a very good question. It's been an enduring ambivalence in the heart of Christianity that it it rejects empire, it rejects power, um, it, it, it praises those who are at the bottom of the pile. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is Christ's own message. However, the paradox is that Christianity becomes the imperial cult and then over the course of, of 2,000 years, it's, it's spread and grown to become the most hegemonic way of understanding the world that humanity has ever devised. And so its very power, its very spread, its very hegemony has caused Christians and, and even more post-Christians a great deal of, of anxiety. And so... Attitudes towards Constantine are a kind of lightning rod for that. You know, there have always been Christians who have celebrated it, who have celebrated the idea of of a Christian empire. But equally, there have always been Christians who've recognised that it's it's highly problematic. And in the the specifically Latin tradition, Western tradition, probably the most influential one has been Augustine, who... um, who writes his most famous book, The City of God, after Rome has been sacked. And when people who are not Christian are saying this happened because we have abandoned the traditional cultic practices, we've abandoned the traditional gods. And Augustine says, actually, the city of God is eternal. That transcends the flux of things, which in Latin is is cyculum. Cyculum is, is the limit of living memory. And he counterpoints the city of man with the city of God, the empire of Rome or any earthly power with the eternal rule of, 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 of God. And that in turn then serves to generate what will become an incredibly potent concept for Christianity and in due course for Western societies and indeed for societies beyond the West, which is that a dimension called the cyculum can be counterpointed to something that in due course will come to be called religion. And that's not at all a cultural given. That way of seeing the world as divided between religious and secular spheres is something very, very distinctive to Christianity and grows out of this Augustinian emphasis that one empire, one state cannot possibly be equated with the city of God. And is that partly why Christianity managed to survive the fall of Rome when yes. other aspects of Roman life didn't? Yes, yes. And, and its survival enables a, a large amount of Roman culture to survive as well. So the classic narrative of this, which is Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire, in which Christianity is blamed for the fall of the Roman Empire. The, the idea is that, you know, they all become soft because they're all off in monasteries rather than fighting barbarians. Couldn't actually be more wrong. It's It's precisely the potency of Christianity, the fact that it has this enormous network of bishops quite independent from the imperial frameworks that enables not just Christianity, but such Romanitas as survives into the early medieval period to endure. One of the big arguments of your book is that Christianity is responsible for the Western mindset that we have, and, and even beyond the West nowadays. 
when when you make that argument, are you talking specifically about one form of Christianity, or does this encompass all the different branches that have formed? Um, the, the focus of the book is on what has been most influential in Christianity. And the most influential form of Christianity on the world has been the Western form, which grew out of Latin Christendom. So the emphasis is very much on that. The, the book is divided into three because the tapestry I'm having to weave is so enormous that I couldn't possibly... It's, it, I couldn't possibly give a straight history of Christianity. Demon McCulloch's done that, and it took him something like a thousand pages, and I couldn't begin to rival that. So instead, it's a history of what's been influential about Christianity, which is a subtly different thing. And I've divided into three because that's the sacred Christian number. It's the number of the Trinity, of course. So one in three, three in one. And the first section, Antiquity, is about the primal Christian revolution. So that covers the entire span of the Roman world and beyond. But then the second section, Christendom, the focus is very much on on Latin Christendom and its gradual breakdown over the course of the Reformation. And then the third section, Modernitas, is about the, the trace elements that Christian assumptions, Christian ethics, Christian morals, Christian convictions about how a society should be organised about how, like kind of asbestos dust after a building's been knocked down, they linger in the air, being breathed in by people who may not even realise what it is that they're breathing in. And you mentioned before how Christianity did take on some aspects of, say, ancient Greek culture, ancient Roman culture. To what extent are the values that we're calling Christian here different from that? Can we say this is different from... It's not just the values of... Well, they, they, they're simultaneously an absolute rejection of... The claims of Roman power. It's a transformation of the emblem of, of, of Roman power, the cross, into its absolute opposite. And at the same time, of course, it is drawing on all kinds of elements from, from the Greek and Roman world in which it's growing up. That said, it radically reconfigures almost everything that Romans and Greeks in the pre-Christian period had taken for granted. It emphasises weakness over strength, it places an emphasis on charity that, again, is, is, is radically different in kind from the Greek and Roman models of both personal and state patronage. Um, it radically reconfigures Roman assumptions about how sex should be understood and practised. It reconfigures the way that, that, you know, as I said, by introducing notions of, of, of what will become the secular concepts of, of of something called a religion in the long run, again, this is radically reconfigures it. And so in almost every way, the world of Western Europe in, let's say, 1300 has been utterly transformed from the world of, of the time of Augustus. And it's not just that the empire itself has gone, it's that the way of understanding the world, of thinking, of functioning, of being born and of dying, all of this has changed utterly. And I think we take that change so for granted that we today find it hard to, um, hard to recognise it. Christianity is, is the water that we as goldfish are swimming in. And how far was the church over these centuries actually representing the essential values of Christianity that you've been talking about? Well, essential values, I mean, the values of Christianity are embedded in the figure of Christ above all and in the Gospels, and then in the inheritance of uh, the fathers and the, the church and, and so on and various practices. But simultaneously, it's incredibly unstable because 
one of the things that it it introduces into um, in, into society, and and again, this is kind of radically different to what went before, is the idea that radical change can actually be a positive. So the figure of Paul, who is spectacularly converted, is the kind of archetype of that, that you can be born again, that you can be baptised in the spirit and in water, that your sins can be washed away. And what happens in Western Europe, in the Latin church, is that by the 11th century, the notion that this idea of radical rebirth, of recalibration, is coming to be applied on the level of, of the state and indeed on, on, on Christendom as a whole. And this demands that traditional ways of doing things be torn up and that this process of tearing things up is to be celebrated you know, that novelty in that sense is is something that is absolutely an expression of God's will. And this is so extreme a position that essentially it's kind of verging on the heretical. But these these heretical revolutionaries succeed in capturing the what, what, what had always been the, the, the most prestigious office in the Latin church, that of the Bishop of Rome. And they turn the papacy into an agent of revolution. And over the course of the 11th and the 12th centuries, agents of this radically ref- reforming papacy, this papacy that's committed to what it calls reformatio, uh, a reshaping of the world. Humble kings, the emperor famously is made to wait in the snow for Gregory Seventh, the pope at Canossa. Um, it sends armed warriors to the limits of the world, be that in the Baltic states or in Spain, or most famously of all to Jerusalem with the First Crusade. And it constructs an entire apparatus of law, which provides people across Europe with the idea that there is a a court of appeal and a form of justice that transcends the merely local laws. And over the course of the 12th century and 13th century, the notion that Every human being has rights, that it's not just an obligation on the rich to give charity to the poor, but that the poor have a right to receive it from the rich, gets embedded in canon law. And again, this is a a kind of incredibly potent and significant concept that will bear all kinds of fruit. And this form of revolution that we get, that that essentially medieval society embodies, is one that continues to reverberate throughout subsequent European and then Western history. Because, of course, what happens with a a volcanic explosion of this order is that in due course, the lava begins to calcify. And what had been a radical and revolutionary movement starts to become the elite, starts to um, occupy the very positions that previously it had campaigned against. And this in due course generates another seismic and European-wide bout of reformatio, which we call the Reformation. But calling it the Reformation disguises the way in which actually it's just another kind of quake from the primal earthquake that had happened in the 11th century, and which in turn, of course, had been influenced by the even more primal earthquake of of the emergence of Christianity in the first and second centuries. In the Reformation, you get pretty much everything that you've got in the 11th century. You get kind of kings being humbled, you get 
people ideologically committed to uh, concepts of holy war. You get new frameworks of seeing the world, new cadres of people who are uh, drawing up laws, drawing up uh, philosophies, drawing up frameworks for understanding the world. And then in turn, in the 18th century, you get the Enlightenment, you get the French Revolution. That, again, is recognisably bred of the marrow of this tradition into the Russian Revolution, into the 60s, into the present day. So in a sense, the idea of the progressive, the idea that society can be changed for the better, is possibly one of the most influential and enduring legacies of, of Christianity. It's, it's absolutely not a given before that. Um, and so when people talk about themselves as being progressive or you know, governments cast themselves as radical, as a radicalism, the commitment to radical change is a positive, they may not recognise that they're the heirs of, of the papal reformers in the 11th century, but they, they absolutely are. So as you alluded earlier to things like the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, a lot of these people, certainly by the time the Russian Revolution, saw themselves as diametrically opposed to religion, but you'd still yes. argue that they were, perhaps unwittingly, still the heirs of Christianity. Well, what, hap what happens is, I, if you look at the Reformation, the Reformation casts itself as purging the Christian order of superstition. Before that, back in the Roman period, Christians had seen themselves as, as purging the pagan world of, of superstition, of bringing the people who'd walked in darkness into a great light. Protestant reformers are doing exactly the same, but now it's it's the Catholic Church that is the object that is cast as being Babylon, that is cast as being the great kind of vehicle of superstition that's got to be destroyed. And the Protestant Reformation couched this above all in terms of light. People who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, the lightness of the spirit coming on the heart that enables the individual to become enlightened. The illumination of the spirit. And it doesn't take long for this kind of language and this kind of idea that enlightenment and the purging of the world of superstition, it ends up having Christianity itself as its object. And that, of course, is, is a fundamental part of the more radical elements of, of what we call the Enlightenment. It's certainly a strong element of the French Revolution, and it's a, a, a peculiarly militant aspect of, of the Russian Revolution. But the configuration remains the same. The fact that, that Christianity itself comes to be the object of these instincts is yet another paradox of this most paradoxical of, of, of cultural movements. And it means that you can be a militant atheist and yet sound stridently like a Protestant reformer because essentially the line of descent is, is pretty clear. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The paradox of Christianity is that it is simultaneously, it inspires people to aspire to conquer the whole world, to bring the whole world to Christ, while also suffering from the anxiety that doing that is somehow to betray the example of the crucifixion. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. And another paradox that you certainly allude to in the book is the way that Christianity inspired both people like the slave traders and the conquerors of you know, the Americas, but at the same time also the people that opposed slavery and that opposed some of the darker aspects of conquest. So how do we yeah. bring that together? Well, there's a tension at the heart of Christian universalism, and it's there right from the beginning. So Paul, writing to the Galatians, preaches this new covenant, the old covenant that Moses had brought the children of Israel. No need for it anymore because there's this new covenant written in the blood of Christ on the cross. And that means that there is no Jew or Greek, he says, no slave or free, no man or woman, because all are one in Christ. Now, that's a model of, of, of universalism, a dissolution of difference that, that we today find enormously appealing. And that, I think, is largely because we remain its heirs. But if you're a Jew and you don't want to have your distinctiveness, you don't want to have your personal covenant with God dissolved into this kind of universalist mush, then what do you do? Well, you say, no, I don't want to. I want to stay as I am, please. And that then, of course, generates resentment among those who say, well, you should you know, forced to become part of our universal brotherhood of man. And once you, get, once you get Christians who are armed with swords or, you know, horses or guns in the, uh, the case of the conquistadors, then you can um, essentially justify uh, conquering people who are not Christian, who reject the gospel as, as an expression of God's will, and indeed can provide a kind of fanaticism that, that makes quite effective conquerors of, of Christians. But at the same time, you have the, you have the problem that, um, first of all, what, what do you do if people don't want to be part of your universal Christian order? And secondly, if Christ was crucified, suffered death under an oppressive empire, and you've now become an oppressive empire, then doesn't that mean that actually it's those who are suffering under the empire who are closer to Christ? So the very process of imperial conquest, if you're a Christian, inevitably throws up reactions against it, both among those who are the conquerors, so 
people like um, Las Casas in Spain, and then Quakers in New England and uh, uh, North America. And then in due course, among those who uh, have actually been conquered and who absorb Western ambivalences about empire. So that is why, essentially, the paradox of Christianity is that it is simultaneously, it inspires people to aspire to conquer the whole world, to bring the whole world to Christ, while also suffering from the anxiety that doing that is somehow to betray the example of of the crucifixion. And and that's a, a, a tension and a paradox that continues to lie at the heart of the West today. I mean, it may be secularised, but it's still absolutely there. And do you notice differences in the way that Christian countries and empires have behaved over history compared to, say, Muslim ones or even, say, China and things like that? Can you see differences in behaviour? I think there is a much greater ambivalence among Western empires than, say, among the caliphate, Muslim empires. Um, I think that the, the, the mandate for conquest in Islam is much clearer. Certainly, that's how historically it's been understood. That doesn't mean that um, Christians haven't been just as brutal and just as concerned to conquer that, and they clearly have. But I think the ambivalences have been much greater. And an interesting point you raise in the book is how Christianity has really shaped other religions and even the concept of them being religions. Yes, yes. I wonder if you could explain a little bit about that idea. Well, we talked about the cyclum, this eternal flux, um, counterpointed against that is the bond that you as an individual Christian can have with God. And bond is, in Latin, is a religio. And a religio in classical Latin meant anything that established a bond with a God. So a festival, a priesthood, a sacrifice, something like that. In the Christian era, religio comes to signify those who have a a particularly close bond with God, who consecrate themselves to God as a bond. So monks, nuns, hermits, people like that. With the Reformation, this concept of a personal bond with the God becomes democratised. Everybody has it. Monasteries get closed down. Um, every, every individual Protestant has a religio with, with God. And so a twofold understanding of what in English comes to be called religion gets anglicised to religion. On the one hand, a religion is something that's personal to a believer. It's, it's you know, what religion do you have? What, what are your personal beliefs? What is your personal relationship to a deity? That's what a religion is. Simultaneously, a religion is something that can be seen as distinct from something called, again, it's been, you know, cyclum is anglicised to the secular. So religion is something distinct from the secular. And by the 18th century, 19th century, when the British are expanding across the world and taking their language and therefore these concepts with them, the idea that something called religion, the idea that something called the secular exists is taken absolutely for granted by not just missionaries, but by everybody going out to other civilizations. So in India, people arrive, British arrive in India, and they start to say, well, what, what religion do the people of India, which they call, who they call the Hindus, you know, what, what religion do Hindus have? Well, there's the, uh, there's the religion of the Muslim Hindus, there's the religion of the Christian Hindus, and then there's the religion of all the other Hindus. And in time, this religion of all the other Hindus comes to be called Hinduism, and Hindus comes to be equated with those who practice the Hindu religion. And the British take for granted that there is something called Hinduism, which exists distinct from everything else in India, all the great swirl of its 
the way that people live their lives, cultures, everything. And in time, this is an idea that Indians themselves come to take on, so that by the time the Raj comes to an end, India proclaims itself to be a secular republic with a notion that there are religions, Hinduism, Islam, whatever, absolutely woven into the fabric of the Indian constitution. And as a great Indian scholar has said, Christianization proceeds in two ways. It proceeds through conversion, which doesn't happen in India, and it proceeds through secularization, which clearly has happened. And I think a large part of what's happening in India at the moment with Modi and the rise of, 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 of what is called the Hindu right is a, a kind of reaction against that, a kind of recognition that actually the secular isn't something that is universal. It's not a kind of given. It's not something that's just there, like the oxygen we breathe in. Uh, that in fact, it's very, very culturally contingent and it's a legacy of the British imperial period. And so that's why they want to get rid of it. Difficult to get rid of it, though, because it's become an idea that's so embedded in the way that that, that people and not just Christians see the world that it's almost impossible to kind of imagine a world where that, that notion of the secular doesn't exist. Likewise, with Judaism and with Islam, much the same process happened, except Jews are kind of fascinating example because they are actually living within Christendom, within the Christian world. And they had always seen themselves as belonging not to anything called a religion. I mean, this, this is an alien, holy Christian way of conceptualizing things. They see themselves as belonging to a people. They are the people of Israel. Um, but what happens in the 19th century with the French Revolution and the emancipation of the Jews is that they're offered citizenship, but they have to accept that they do not belong to a distinct people. They're, the laws of Moses are given no status at all under the constitutions of, of the emergent European states in the 19th century. And Jews have to accept that they belong to something called a religion, not to a people. And so over the course of the 19th century, you see Reform Judaism emerge as a kind of a, almost overtly Protestant attempt to satisfy that. And much the same thing is happening um, again with Islam, that again, Muslims don't have an idea of something called Islam as a, that's a religion. It's only gradually over the course of the 19th and 20th century that that idea comes to be taken on board by Muslims. Um, and that's why you will often see among um, Muslims who, who reject secularism, that they, they will avoid using the word religion, even if they're native English speakers. They'll use the word deen, which is conventionally translated as religion, but has a very, very different signification. Because again, I think they recognise that to use these words and to apply them is inherently to Christianize something that previously had been uninfected, as, as they would see it, by this. And you even go so far in the book as to say that groups like Islamic State are themselves, to some extent, heirs of this Christian tradition. Yeah, well, what happens in the Muslim world over the 19th century is that the British, for instance, when they are approached by the Sultan to join Ottoman forces in the um, Crimean War, one of the conditions is that um, the Sultan has to crack down on the slave trade. And there are Muslim scholars, it seems bizarre. Why would they want to do that? Slavery is something that, that Every society is practiced. It's sanctioned in the Quran. It's sanctioned by the example of the Prophet. It's sanctioned in the Hadiths. Why would they want to do that? And the British say, well, you've got to do it because it's the right thing to do. 
Uh, and in saying that, they're trying to disguise the fact that actually they think it's the right thing to do because a distinctively evangelical brand of Protestantism has convinced the British that it's the right thing to do. Coming back to the West, church attendances, certainly in Europe, are probably the lowest they've, they've ever been. But to what extent do you feel that like, the underlying Christian attitudes still endure here? I think they endure very, very powerfully. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that that's evident in the way that people take for granted, for instance, concepts like the secular, concepts like religion, things like that. So on that level. But I think they're also uh, very enduring on the level of, of ethical and moral assumptions. So if we, if we look at the, the, the concept of the woke, the idea that, that you get awakened to a proper understanding of, of, of how things should be seen and invariably being awakened, becoming woke, seeing the light enables you to, 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 to recognise that it's those who are downtrodden, those who are marginalised, who actually have uh, the higher status. And, you know, this is absolutely <laughs> a very strange way of understanding things. And yet people who advance that can take it completely for granted that it's the right thing. And the only reason they can take for granted that it's the right thing is that they live in societies that are so saturated with Christian assumptions that you don't need to be a Christian just to take it for granted. Um, th the question is how long these assumptions will last without the kind of seedbed of, of actual Christian faith and practice. And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of, I think, one of the most interesting questions that we face in the future is whether... Assumptions bred of Christianity can survive the decline of, of Christian faith. And this is a question specifically for the West, because elsewhere in the world, Christianity is, is flourishing and growing, particularly in Africa, um, but also across much of Asia as well. So it's, it's a question specifically for the West, and I don't know the answer to that. On a personal level, would you describe yourself as a Christian? And has, has writing this book changed your own thoughts about the faith? I was brought up... Um, Christian, but from an early age, I, I kind of found my faith going because I had a very Victorian crisis of faith. I was very into dinosaurs and I, I had a kind of children's Bible in which there was a brachiosaur with Adam and Eve. And I knew that this couldn't have happened. And so all kinds of questions, you know, on the most literal level uh, made me um, question it. Um, and I was to always, to be honest, I, I found the Greeks and the Romans just, you know, much, much sexier. I just kind of much preferred them. But, but I've come to recognise that in almost everything I think I am Christian. And I, I made a film in Iraq and we went to Sinjar, which was a town inhabited by the Yazidis, a religious minority who were targeted for crucifixion and enslavement by the Islamic State. And when I went there, the Islamic State were a, about a mile away across kind of open expanse of land. And... To be in a city where a town where where people had been crucified in exactly the way that the Romans had crucified people, I felt it as a kind of blasphemy. Uh, I felt a kind of deep visceral horror at the idea that that people could be crucified and and that the myth that in some way the crucifixion had triumphed over that kind of brute power. I realised that that in a way it it my belief in it transcends all objectivity it's something that is deeply within me and so that i think is a kind of faith so i i think to that extent i am christian yeah and just one last probably very simplistic question but do you think this 
profound Christian legacy that we have that's been here in the West for say two thousand years. Has that on balance been a good thing? That begs an enormous question as to what is good. Uh, and essentially, our definition of what is good and bad remains a Christian one. And if we judge Christianity and say it's been bad, the paradox is that we judge it to have been bad by Christian standards. So it's failed to live up to its own standards. Yes, but without Christianity, we wouldn't have those standards by which to judge it. I think, I think that it's, that, that's a question for, for, for moralists and theologians. Personally, because I, I think that my notions of good and bad are Christian and I like those standards of good and bad, I think I, I would not want to be deprived of those standards of, of what is good and bad. So yes, I think, I think it's been a force for good. That was Tom Holland. Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, is out now in the UK, published by Little Brown. And you can read a piece by Tom on a fascinating group of medieval Christian proto-communists in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also contains pieces on the Dambusters raid, the Crusades and the rise of the Nazis, among other things. Meanwhile, Tom will be discussing his new book at our History Weekend events at both Winchester and Chester this autumn. You can find out more details and purchase tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. And that's all for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Uatt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when Susanna Lipscomb will be exploring the lives of French women of the Reformation era. 